When I was 21 years old, I made my first trip to New York City. It was a pilgrimage of sorts for me, a small town Indiana boy who'd always dreamed of the city. I meandered the streets of the West Village and Chelsea and Midtown, overcome and overwhelmed by its scope and scale. The Twin Towers of the World Trade Center anchored the view of the lower part of Manhattan, imposing in size. Their plain limestone facade made them seem permanent, indestructible. I returned to New York several times in the course of the 80s and 90s. Manhattan grew smaller as I became familiar with its neighborhoods, its traffic patterns. The Twin Towers faded into the background, always there, immovable, permanent. It's funny how we mistake size and scale for permanence. Twin Towers weren't indestructible, as we all know. 20 years ago, we witnessed them falling, one after another. And the shock of 9-11 remains with us to this day. The shadow of the towers looms large in our collective imaginations, fueling war cries, distrust, and anger. And at the time, I remember how shocked we were as a country. How could we, America, be hated by so many? It was unimaginable that we could be the bad guys in their stories. No, we were the white hats, the good guys. America was the city on the hill, uniquely blessed by God. You can hate the Russians, hate the Chinese, heck, even hate the French, but don't hate us. Some say America lost its innocence on that day, that the scales fell from our collective eyes and we saw ourselves as they, those who hated us, saw us. A bully, someone to be feared, not loved, possibly not God's chosen. And I say that because the fracture that happened on 9-11 is probably the closest we can come to the shock felt by the community of Mark and his disciples in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Jesus' disciples, a ragtag group of small-town Galileans, are amazed by the size and scale of the temple in Jerusalem. It's probably the largest building they've ever seen. Josephus, the Jewish priest and historian, describes the walls of the temple as being over 450 feet high. That's as high as a 45-story building. That would have been quite an amazing and imposing structure. And Jesus makes a shocking claim that this enormous structure will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Jesus' prediction about the temple's destruction was especially shocking because of what it suggested about God. Would God allow such a thing to happen to his house, this wonderful, enormous structure, this temple? The Gospel of Mark was written right around the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, following the zealot-led uprising of the late 60s. Jesus' prediction would be realized, God's chosen people scattered, the follower of the way, Jesus' disciples, would be threatened, endangered, and persecuted. It's funny how we confuse God's favor with safety, with security. The disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, are confused. When they're together in private on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple, they ask him, when is this going to happen? What are the signs? As is often the case in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't answer them. And instead of focusing on the when and the what of the end times, 
he instructs them in a way of living that doesn't focus all their attention on the destruction of the temple and the second coming. You see, this is key because then, as now, there was a booming business in the calculation of the end time. Today, every tragedy, earthquake, wildfire, and the like are cited as proof the end times are approaching. Forget global warming. Some look at the latest mega hurricane with something like glee, a further proof point in their end times calculation. You see, we, like the disciples, can become so focused on discerning the signs at the times that we neglect our more important mission to witness to the gospel today. Now, last week at All Saints Sunday, I preached on the universality of the resurrection and how different the world would be if we truly believed our salvation sealed by our baptism. Since it was All Saints, I neglected to mention that that's only half the story. This week, the other shoe drops. This salvation thing, it ain't going to be easy. Salvation is a messy business. It's not a one and done like I implied. Rather, a process of repentance and forgiveness and new birth that is happening all the time. Salvation is both a source of hope and a challenge. And as Jesus reminds us, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Oof. I'm not one to be a downer, but I think things are going to get worse. Probably a lot worse than they before they get better. As I speak, the prospect of Russia invading the Ukraine seems inevitable, as does China trying to take over Taiwan. The Belarusians and Poles appear poised to go to war as hundreds of Iraqi and Syrian refugees gather at their border, the victims of their own country's struggles. And closer to home, we're seeing more division, not less, under a new administration. Social media and fake news are driving everyone into their bunkers of like thinkers as they debate what truth is. Congressmen, election monitors, and even school board members are being physically and even mortally threatened for their views or their votes. Victims of war and earthquakes in Haiti are being rounded up at the border, put on planes, and sent back to one of the poorest places on the planet. Not to mention climate change, the global refugee crises, and just a seemingly general increase in, well, meanness. It's kind of like forget love your neighbor these days, but do you trust your neighbor who's likely well armed in case the answer is no? It really is enough to want to throw our hands up and just kind of give up, which gets us to the case of Hannah from today's readings. Now it's interesting how in this next to last week of ordinary time, we're given a double dose of Hannah in the first reading and in Hannah's song, for the psalm. It's kind of like they really want us to pay attention to her. And it's been said that in the Bible, when a formerly barren woman gives birth, the child is destined to be an important figure in history. And that's certainly the case with Hannah, who gives birth to the prophet Samuel, who will inaugurate the golden era of Israel, and the kings, first Saul, and then David, to lead the kingdom to glory. Also in, the, there's, also in the Bible, there's Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, and of course, Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. So maybe there's a point to this. And what's striking for us today, as we're seemingly poised on the verge of what looks like an apocalypse, is how Hannah expresses her grief, and in the second reading, her joy, and what that says about God. See, in the patriarchal structure of ancient Israel, 
A woman held little value on her own. Her main responsibility was to have children, male children, to continue the family. If she was barren, she was of no value. Elkanah's other wife, the fertile Penina, made sure Hannah was aware of her worthlessness. And I do love Hannah's husband, Elkanah's answer to Hannah's suffering. Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I don't know about you, but is there anything more frustrating when someone tells you, don't feel that way, and especially when it's a spouse, right? Elkanah's high self-regard is proof that mansplaining goes back for centuries. <laughs> Hannah is aware of her status in society, but it doesn't keep her from knowing her value to God. She's empowered by an intimate connection to God. Her power doesn't come from status or influence, but from connection. In response to her suffering, she prays and makes vows to God. Samuel will become a Nazarite. He'll be set apart, made holy for God. She gets some half-hearted words of encouragement from the priest, Eli, and then is with child. Her prayer answered. And her first response after giving birth to Samuel is to praise God. First response is to praise God. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. Hannah shows us a way to see God's power in everything that happens, the good and the bad, in barrenness and birth, in death and triumph over death, in poverty and wealth, in dishonor and honor. And we say as much in our creed when we assert our belief in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Hannah's song tells us that deeds have consequences because the judge of the earth seeks equity. In a move that recalls Mary's Magnificat, which we'll celebrate in a few short weeks during Advent, Hannah proclaims, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. In Hannah, we see God's powerful activity in the work as creative, it's generative, and it's attractive. It calls forth a complex creation and is always luring it towards its best destiny, its salvation, in both the bad and the good. And as children of God, we have value, not in status or power, but in connection. Our destiny, our salvation, is to be holy just as God is holy a people set apart for the sake of the world. And our life as church, the body of Christ, is of God, and of God's grace, and of God's self-sharing, God's embrace. Now, I stand behind my statement last week in the power of believing in the resurrection, in our salvation. But it isn't going to be easy. Like the disciples, we'll be touched, or in fact, we are being touched, by the awful destruction of the apocalypse but there's hope on the other side. I don't know if you remember, but the most amazing thing happened in the weeks that followed the 9-11 attacks. It didn't last long, so you might have forgotten about it. But for that brief time, it seemed as though the world was united in support of us. And I remember the flags. Suddenly, flags began appearing everywhere on houses, outside apartments, on car antennas. They were everywhere. Red states, blue states, all races, colors, creeds. You remember? 
It was a glorious time. But a few weeks it lasted. And maybe that's what salvation, what God's destiny for us is. Connection. Unity. With God and with each other. All others. Everywhere. Let's hope so. Amen.